0: Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com.
1: We're not going to save ourselves of the earth purely through conventional, um, technical, economic, political ways of doing things. We are only going to create a sane future, a bright future for humankind and for the regeneration of other species and their habitats if we deepen into community with one another and the planet. And that means opening up to the work of love.
2: Hello, welcome to the Mind Rolling Podcast on Be Here Now Network. My name is Noah Marcus. I'll be your host this week. It's usually Raghu Marcus, my father, but you know what? He had a spoonful of some really good maple syrup, and he just went into spontaneous samadhi. Now we can't get him out here to record this intro, so you're stuck with me. (laughs) That's just a little reference to uh, Love Serve Remember Foundation's new movie, Brilliant Disguise. Go head over to romdos.org to get more info on that. Check out how you can see it, it's worth it. And sorry, that's the only plug you're getting out of me, I swear. Anywho, uh, this week's episode of Mind Rolling is an anthology of uh, clips from past mind rolling episodes. <laughs> Uh, They're all focused around topics, uh, the environment, climate change, our connection with animals, and ecology as a whole. So these clips are taken from conversations that Raghu had with Mary Claire and Gary Ferguson, with John Lockley, with Sarah Wilson, and with Alistair McIntosh. So first up from Mind Rolling episode 382... Uh, We have Raghu talking with Mary Claire and Gary Ferguson. Mary and Gary discuss how developing a relationship with the natural world can help us move past an egocentric worldview. Uh, And then they explore the realities of climate change. So um, it's really good, powerful stuff. I hope you enjoy it. And I will be back throughout the episode to introduce the rest of the clips.
3: Hi, everyone. It's Ragu, and I'm back with uh, gee, a couple of people. How long have we been talking? Mary and Gary? a long time
4: about a year since maybe yeah. before COVID hit.
5: yeah I think, yeah, I think that's right.
3: Yeah. so here we are as uh, I'm really happy to have you and these uh, these guys, uh, in my mind, really you really emblemize what. Ramdas was all about, in relation to, most especially to do what we need to do. This is everybody. I'm. It's, it's, it's around. This whole podcast will be around. What is going on in with the environment and what is going on ecologically? What is going inside us and our relationship to it and to each other? Uh, and which is why I really love what you're what you're doing in your work because it's about straightening. If we can't get uh, into a transformation of the polarization and separation that's in each one of us, and that is how we relate to other people and the environment, we it, it's problematic. So yes. yeah, so it's been yes. yeah, really great. Um, so uh, these guys put together a book called Full Ecology. And uh, and I think I just described the way in which it is not. It is all interconnected with who we are as people, how we act, what perspective we come from, uh, what uh, connection to both the mystery and the um, interconnectivity of absolutely everything. So just yeah. yeah. kind of yeah. say but something, uh, yeah?
4: yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. But you know, first of all, so so the. The listeners know who's speaking. I'm Mary, and this is Gary. Yes. And that's a little <laughs> that... bit cute. It was almost a deal breaker, mm. the little rhyme thing. But we liked each other so much that we got over it. <laughs> we have different last names, so that works pretty well.
1: Yeah, right. But yeah.
4: Um, Ragu, it's so great to be here with you. and the, I am just so grateful for how many people and I think that COVID is really accelerating this, our opening to to the different ways that we have for being reminded of the truth of who we are. All we need to do is look outside the window, take a walk, be outside, and we'll talk more about that. Gary and I met about eight eight years years ago. ago. (laughs) Yes,
5: yes, indeed, we did. not to uh, go into the entire story, but Mary was living in Portland and I was in a little town called Red Lodge, Montana, playing blues harp in a band. Uh, And the leader of the band was a great guitar player who happened to have gone to college down in Texas with Mary. And I didn't know anything about Mary. He just said one night, uh, hey, uh, I'm having an old buddy over for pizza. Can you can you come over and, and join in the conversation? And, and, and Mary was the buddy, basically.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. I had driven from Portland on spring break. Because Portland, Regu, you may know, in spring, is like one of the wettest, most <laughs> dreary. I mean, really. I know and of so, it, yes. Uh, I was on spring break and uh, from my work as a professor, and I could not imagine staying in the house. And so I called my friend who had, I'd promised for 30 years that I'd come meet his family. I called him in Montana and said, I'm coming. Mm. But I woke up that morning late and I thought, oh, Joe will understand. I feel a little depressed. I'll come another time. But I got in the car anyway. And I drove out there and met Gary. Mm. And, and, and we
5: just, started talking almost immediately. I, I with a a long background in conservation and uh, environmental science writing, uh, experiencing the the wilderness to the tune of almost 35,000 miles on trail, and Mary with a really esteemed career as a social scientist. And as I talked about what excited me in the natural world, and Mary talked about what excited her in the human world, we truly came to understand the level of connection, the fact that we are nature and that the qualities that inform the natural world and allow it to not just survive but thrive are the same qualities in us. And Mm -hmm. so it it, it isn't a matter of inventing something. It's a matter of of reclaiming.
4: And it's not like it's news. It's not news. This has always been so. But we have gotten to this position in this country where we either uh, see ourselves as heroic uh, advocates for the natural world that is outside of us, or captains of industry that are going to exploit the natural world you know so so this whole orientation of separation is a problem, and the fact is we can love the natural world all we want, but if we 're messed up in our relationships or in the way we are with ourselves, as you were saying earlier, hmm. then we 're not going to be very yeah. effective in what we want to steward
3: yeah. Um, you know, who did I see recently? Um, there's a program that they were interviewing, um, Bill Gates. And you know how much he's been involved. I mean, to him now that this is the thing that he's working on. And you know he, he talked about the untold amounts of money he was losing in trying to get startups to actually get something that could be executed in the real world and all of that, and started talking about uh, you know other sources of energy and all the usual stuff that uh, we see all the time, what struck in terms of wind power and solar power and all of it, and getting out of uh, fossil fuel. And but what struck me was he uh, it got into just how much integra- how well integrated, rather, uh, fossil fuels are for the most um, intricate parts of our physical lives, like in buildings. Just think yeah. of what's in these buildings and what mm-hmm. comes from fossil fuels. So the level of uh, it's extraordinary, and you know, and he's admitting it's the turning of that at this point that is so embedded in everything is a daunting, daunting mm-hmm. uh, factor. Yeah. So, uh, how do you uh, what do you what do you think about something like that? And I know we're talking in this, we, you are talking in this book so much of doing the kind of work on ourselves that allow us to even think properly or make a, some a, a move that's going to have a repercussion that's positive whatever you know yeah
5: well first of all i i couldn't agree more with the the how integrated fossil fuels are in our clothing even in our food to a, a remarkable yeah. degree mm-hmm. um and so the 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 challenge is daunting but one of the things that i think we're not lacking is technological imagination, we perhaps need a lot more funding and a lot more commitment. But some of that commitment uh, comes from us changing our outlook and our ability to look at the world uh, around us and not just save the world for our own benefits so we'll be healthier and happier, but actually to integrate that world and realize that there's a kind of kinship there and and, and start Start examining and exploring how interconnected we really are with that world, and and that's a source of nourishment, and that's a source of energy, and that's a source of resilience that will, I, I think, help drive the the more technological and political processes that 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 have to happen.
4: Mm. Yeah, the the tricky bit is for us to switch. And this has to happen internally. We all know this from from the experience of spiritual inquiry, that there are these ways that we can think it, and that's cool. We can even say it, and that's cool, but there's not much integration into the way we are. And so part of what we're bringing forward in full ecology, really, Regu, I remember in early conversations over email mm. that there was this... um you and Duncan, I think, had been talking a lot about um, what about all these folks who get, take one listen to anything we say and they go, ah, hooey, woo-woo, yeah. we're not going to have anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. And so full ecology can easily be responded to that way too, but not probably as quickly because everybody loves the natural world. And you come in through that doorway and you invite people to think of the, the sweetness that they feel in the natural world, even the passion they then can remember for being outdoors, for being the outdoors where the boundaries start disappearing. Then you have a way in to this feeling that we all carry all the time, which is this almost impossible to articulate feeling of belonging, feeling of connection, and so full ecology is an invitation back into making our decisions, writing our policies from a point of connection of that deep kinship. And it's way more than just thinking it. We got to reclaim it, find it back inside of us. It's, an, it's, it's never gone anywhere. It's there but that's part of the challenge. So in these conversations like Gates brings forward, it becomes this feeling, oh my gosh, we're going to have to shut everything down because we can't do any more petroleum. Well, that's not really so. If we way come down on our use of petroleum and transportation, for example, then the... Rapidity with which we go through our stores is cut way back, and some of the other deep dependencies that we have on that resource can be uh, shifted more slowly. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, and, and that has been said, and, and they people who speak what I would call rash rationally and good thinking, right thinking, right the Buddhist Eightfold Path, right mm-hmm. thinking.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: They are all saying this is not a matter of dropping everything and and going forward with uh, with uh, a replacement. It's it's a matter of how we integrate it all so that it has a, 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 the kind of effect that starts to make changes. Um, but it's the consciousness that we're really talking about. That's the most interesting part for me, to be honest. I mean, ob- I'm actually Gary. I'd love to hear you know tell us something of being in your own experience of being in the uh, in nature in the way that you have been and that points to the you you just absolutely are uh unable to to do anything but honor it in every possible way and it starts and turning your own life inward
5: you know i i think one of the best lines that Captures for me the, that appeal and that draw to nature. And, and I think it, it, it's probably universal. It, it is such a power in so many people. Came from Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, That power which sees through our eyes when we go out into nature is seeing the power in the spectacle itself. Mm. That power that sees through our eyes is seeing the power in nature. So there's a kind of recognition there. Now that's the that's the far end of, ooh, that's pretty woo-woo, and that's pretty philosophical. But but right now, there is so much of an explosion of biological and ecological research showing that the porous and interdependent aspects of, of who we are, are are just far greater than we ever thought. Um, I may have mentioned the last time we talked that now we know that if, if you or I go out and walk on a trail or under a tree in the park or in front of our house, the tree is giving off oxygen. Yes. And we breathe that in. We give off carbon dioxide. The tree uses that for energy production. But now we know the tree is giving off phytoncides, which are chemicals that with every breath fortify our immune system and strengthen our vital organs. So the, 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 the more I go down the trail, the more I know not only my intuitive draw to The natural world, but I also am seeing that storytelling system that we call science kind of catching up to what a lot of indigenous uh, and and wise people have known for a very, very long time. One last thing I wanted to say, there's this great uh, line that you and I talk about quite a bit from Elaine Scarry, who's an aesthetics professor at Harvard. And she said, there's a lot of things in life that give us bliss and a lot that make us feel marginalized. And she said, the beauty of Nature. uh, Nature's beauty in particular is astonishing because it does both. It makes us feel marginalized and it brings us bliss. So it's like we go into the instead of the center of the stage where it's the me story and the spotlight's on me. Nature somehow moves us to the edge of the stage. So we're still there, we're still connected, but we don't have that need to be the center of the story. She said it makes us actually happy to be marginalized in that way, to be right-sized by the power of what we're sensing and seeing in that world. Mm. That's uh, very good. Very
3: good. And
4: one of the things that Gary does, he's so uh, humble, (laughs) He doesn't, you asked him to tell a story and he goes right to Ralph Waldo Emerson him or, some or yes. something. So one of the mm-hmm. ways that maybe this works, I've heard you talk about encountering grizzlies and uh. not becoming horrified and into an opposition kind of position, but different. Tell a yeah. grizzly story.
3: Tell a grizzly story. That's we have to a, that's turn down story. the lights. It'll be a late know, night. So if you're Please listening, leave. if you're listening to this late at night as a sort of way to go to sleep, we'll see what happens. Right.
5: Good luck on the dreams tonight, because it's. Um, I've seen many grizzlies from all the miles that I've spent. Uh, solo, mostly, in, in the back country of Yellowstone. And happily, most of them have been at a distance. A couple of them have been within 30 or 40 yards, but I've never had any problems. But certainly, as you can imagine, when you first see uh, an animal of that stature and that power um, and unpredictability, um, it, early on in my exposure, I would say that the, the, over, the, the fear would be somewhat overwhelming. It didn't mean I would run when you're not supposed to run, but <laughs> I would be consumed by it. Now, um, there's, there's, I'm the beneficiary of the power of the present moment because the more you are in the natural world, I think the more you can cultivate that ability to be in the present moment, which we talk about for all sorts of spiritual disciplines. And so when you see a grizzly and you're familiar with nature, there is an intensification of that present moment. Sure, there's a little bit of, you know, heart, ah, heart is I beating faster and whatnot. <laughs> but there's there, what, what rises in that moment of intense present moment awareness is improvisational ability. I think we have, all of us, these innate deep skills to improvise no matter what happens. And this is true in, in social situations as well. It comes from just trusting our instincts, knowing that in this particular moment, given what's going on at this exact second, we are wired, nature has wired us, much as the rest of nature is wired, to respond in a correct way. Now, that doesn't eliminate all the danger altogether, but there's almost a piece uh, with that level of of focus and that level of present moment awareness, as odd as that sounds. Well, I mean... Uh, You
3: hear of saints everywhere stories from the past of being with uh, animals in a way that they had total trust. And they would just... I mean, uh, Ramana Maharshi is what gets called to mind. He had this cow he loved, and that cow loved him so much and would come to to the hall when people were gathering to uh, be in the presence of Darshan of uh, Ramana Maharshi. And they would feed the cow, and even if he pooped, they'd clean it. You know, which never happens in any Indian temple. Let me tell you. So, the the respect and honoring that this being who who was beyond polarity for sure uh, is is extraordinary. I mean, those stories are just fantastic. So, one thing uh, you say, if we're to move forward in the face of climate change a challenge we created. If we wish to give our energy to relief and repair, we must grieve. Yes. I think we need to talk about, you guys need to talk about that because that's not something, I mean, people do grieve. I, You know, I've been in situations where you see things in, uh, in nature and, and I don't mean deep nature, you know, for me it was, uh, the thing I'm thinking about was in the foothills of the, Himalayas, and I was on my way actually to Kenchi, the uh, ashram that we went to uh, to see Neem Karoli Baba a lot up in that area. And this is more recently in the last ten years. Um, And you see trucks uh, line, uh, not lining up, but you'll see a couple of trucks backing into um, the edge of a road, a steep cliff and dumping garbage. I mean, right, I'm talking in the most pristine forests and places of beauty and holy. I mean, just, and this is happening. And, you know, I'm driving by and you just have the worst sinking feeling possible. They don't have any garbage disposal. I mean, of course, I mean, I'm sure you know, the infrast- there is no infrastructure in India. It is just uh, free for all. Uh, it's nuts anyhow that talk about grief because i did have that in that moment i understand what you're saying and i think it's got to be a motivating factor for people because it's happening absolutely everywhere just go to go down to the ocean Mm. go to the beach yes definitely
4: so there is the grieving but there's also the um righteous indignation so and, and I'm not saying that the, I wouldn't recommend righteous indignation no, because no, that's man. a way of separating. Yeah. And the grieving is a way of grieving how it is that we as people ever considered, for example, in the example you're giving, how we ever considered that there was a way that we could throw things to.
6: Yeah.
4: And we had to think from a separate standpoint in order to do that in the first place and so here we are this is what's happening how do we grieve that this is the case and hold that at the same time in fact without holding it at the same time we slow down our capacity we inhibit our capacity to be responsive so we have to open up and hold things more lightly which is much easier said than done But one of the things that helps that happen is looking outside, looking in springtime. There's a promise that it's going to come this year too. I heard that. It's going (laughs) to come. And when it does, we will see the daffodils, we will see the tulips, and we will see them wither. Things that come in the spring wither and die. There is a capacity in our nature to hold this process. Gary was telling me that we it's not so much about grief, but could be that our we now know that our atoms, the atoms that make up your body, the atoms that make up my change every year. You got new atoms. <laughs> so be careful what you're yeah. eating and drinking yeah, oh and thinking about, because you're setting up your atoms for your next year. Yeah. You know, there's
5: something else that comes to my mind talking about grief like this. Um, about 35 years ago, I had this wonderful opportunity. I was invited by Crown Publishers in New York to write this book about um, nature myths, basically. Quick, easy to digest nature stories from cultures all over the world. And so I spent lots of time listening to tapes made by anthropologists and talking to storytellers and going into research libraries. And I probably went through fourteen or 1,500 stories. And as I did, by the time I got to about 300, I realized that they were all holding as essential qualities for living well in the world, if you wanted to make that the theme. They were all suggesting that one or more of three things were essential to live well in the world. The first was to have an active relationship with beauty. The second was to honor and participate in community. And the third was to make a place in your life for mystery. So beauty, community, and mystery, allowing you to not only live well, but a lot of indigenous people um, would would say to move through the hard times. When my first wife, Jane, after 25 years, died in a canoeing accident uh, in uh, 2005, she asked me to go scatter her ashes in her five favorite wilderness areas. I went knowing about those three qualities. And so I intended and was successful to some great degree to turn the wheel of grief, to move through it in 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 sort of an exquisite way by virtue of going out into these wilderness places to scatter her ashes and being very alert and attentive to beauty and community and mystery. So I think we can make it through grief and we can come out wiser and more compassionate and more loving on the other side we don't really have the option to not go through it i mean we we do but the but what are the consequences of of stifling yeah. grief
4: well I mean, we're stuck yeah we see the consequences all around us you know that's what we've been living with we've been called to look at so closely these past few years well you, know, you
3: just take the you know, these Situation. mine is some silly little thing, it's not that silly because of what's really happening there, but uh, we have all bumped into in nature uh, many experiences that give us pause and cause us to have, if not a full-blown blown grief moment, uh, certainly enough of something that constitutes some real suffering. So that that's just, uh, that's going to happen, it is happening, and then it's a matter of how do we how do we approach uh no the the big thing for me is not allowing a coldness to happen where you're mm. just you absolutely you've rationalized it down so that you do not have to have this, this enter into your being into your consciousness mm-hmm. in a way that it's defensive posture it's all about separation mm-hmm. It's all about what, we're, what we've been talking about here. Right. And so that's, that's to me, the most important. Don't become cold because mm-hmm. there's so much of it. And, mm-hmm. and it's our natural defense mechanism. And that's mm-hmm. what I would... Well said. Well said. It
4: surely is. And uh, it, in the end, because we have these frontal lobes and these experiences of being separate, each of us gets to choose. Each of us gets to choose if we want to risk. Sometimes for some people, it feels like if they risk admitting to themselves that they are absolutely connected, they'll die. And you know, the, I have said to my students, I, I love what the, I understand the Sufi said 4,000 years ago, is, which is you're very lucky, lucky, lucky if you die before you die.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, yes, what a yes.
4: wacky, what in the world? What does mm-hmm. that mean? Mm-hmm. And for me, it is those, those. this is going to sound out there, but people just need to check it out. Those trees out there are dying to every moment because they're not thinking about the next moment and they're not thinking about the last moment. When I got to do some work in the Federal Corrections Institution in Sheridan, Oregon, for four years I got to meet up with inmates who were there because they were very, they were gurus. They were they were amazing. They knew that they were in that place with themselves and that they could either use it as a monastery or they could continue living their lives the way they always had. Well, one of them came up with what we came to call the Marty Maxim. And he said, if I am rehearsing, or rehashing, then I'm not here. And this Mm -hmm. is where Mm -hmm. I am. So Marty wasn't 100% successful. I'm not 100% successful, but the tree is. I stand to learn a lot from that tree.
2: All right. So next up, we have a clip from episode 304 of Mind Rolling. It's Raghu and John Lockley in conversation around tuning in to animal energies, rewilding through indigenous wisdom, and finding stillness through meditation and mindfulness practice. Enjoy.
3: Okay, so what's been going on in your life? And we haven't talked in quite some time. And, uh, and I know some of the work that you do is so apropos with some of the uh, biggest issues that we have worldwide, and of course, particularly here in this country. Uh, lately because of the political atmosphere.
6: Hmm. Where have you been and what have you been doing? Catch us up. Well, I've been exploring and doing some research on my second book, which is to do with the wilderness. So the last six months I've been in South Africa and I've been researching um, the wilderness. So I've spent a lot of time in Botswana. And then I also spent time in South Africa swimming with the great white sharks And um, my whole focus has been how to help the wilderness. That's been my kongan or my riddle, how to help the wilderness. I
3: I have to stop you because you just tossed this out like swimming with the great white sharks. Like I could have (laughs) said, hey, John, we're going down to the Y. We'll go swimming together. (laughs) What are we talking about? You just don't go swimming with the, come on, you got to give us more on that.
6: Yeah, so I have, this, um, I have this yearning to experience the wilderness. So I experienced the, the wilderness of my youth and the wilderness of Africa. So the lions, all the animals. And I thought, what is the most fearsome animal in the wilderness? And for me, it would be the great white shark. So I decided to go do what's called cage diving um, off the west coast of, of South Africa. And it's very safe in many ways. You just they put you in with about six people. You're in a cage, and then they put chum in the waters. So they put all this all this red um, kind of mackerel and various kinds of fish into the waters to attract the sharks. And then the sharks come, and they swim past you. These great white sharks. And I had this experience. It was it was uh, it was incredible actually. I was right on the edge of the cage. And the cage, the bars are quite wide, actually, and you can put your hand through quite easily and you can slip (laughs) quite easily and your hand can fly out. I mean, it's you're just standing on there and you're kind of using your wits. But it's not too difficult for one body part to go flying out. It's, It's not difficult. So I was watching these incredible creatures, these great white sharks swimming past. And then I had this one moment where the captain of the ship said, They come in, they come in, go down, go down. So the wall went down. And then we just saw this this torpedo, this submarine of this great wire, just swimming just literally like half a meter in front of me. And he was just going past me and I was in the right of the edge of the cage. And for some reason, right next to me, there was this um, foam bullock, this foam section to hold the cage. And for some reason, he just turned his head really quickly. It's almost like he looked me in the eye. And then he just went for it in terms of the foam thing right next to me and the whole cage shook and he had his teeth in there and he was like shaking like this and the whole thing was shaking, you know. <laughs> and I just felt um, that's it, that's Mother Nature. My whole thing was to be close to Mother Nature, to be close to the most fearsome creature on the planet and feel what, what, what does it feel like. Mm. And it actually feels deeply, deeply spiritual. And, uh, and quite scary, but very, very, very spiritual. And you have to be mindful. In those moments, you have to be mindful. I mean, as he went swimming off again, you know, I'm just so aware of where my feet are, where my hands are, because like I could say if you just slip for a second and it's out. And it <laughs> wouldn't very be very mindful. <laughs> it wouldn't be difficult for him to just swing back and have a little chomp, but it wouldn't have been hard, you know?
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Well, so then, yeah. Yeah. All of so this. the
6: state of the wilderness, the state of the wilderness um, is is in a very serious place at the moment around the world, and in particular in Southern Africa. You know, the wilderness is shrinking, and, and there's a number of reasons why the wilderness is shrinking, and the the world, the animals are suffering incredibly. You know, the great white sharks are suffering. Poaching is through the through the through the roof. There's a war on in southern Africa against animals at the moment, where animals are being slaughtered left, right, and centre. And it's almost it's a second form of apartheid, except the apartheid not with human beings, but apartheid with animals and 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 humans. So if the word apartheid it means separation, then we're seeing uh, an incredible situation where man is separated himself or herself. We've separated ourselves from the natural world and it's creating all kinds of, of problems. And I think the root of it is really what we talk about in Buddhism is hungry ghost, hungry ghost energy, where human beings are not connected to their soul, they're not connected to their spirit, and they're replacing that feeling with, with materialism, with buying, with um, commercialism, and with commodities, and, and the that, that human beings have become like a virus on the planet, just eating and, 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 and invading the natural world and taking from the natural world. And, um and I had a number of experiences with the animals, like when I was in Botswana, watching the animals and watching the elephants and just feeling, you know, what is going on here. And, um, and it was it was amazing for me because how I got into the into the bushveld in Botswana was actually through my my second book. I mean, through my first book, Leopard Warrior. And the end of Leopard Warrior, it's it ends with me going into the bush following a, a leopard. And when I was in Montreal last year, I had an incredible experience because a mutual friend is actually a, a safari guide in Botswana, and he hadn't been in touch with me, and then eventually got in touch with me. And he he phoned me when I was in Montreal and we had this long WhatsApp chat um, from when he was in Botswana. And he said to me that he had this experience with a leopard in the bush, this wild leopard. And he said he felt the leopard was calling me to to go into the bush and to join him. And um, so I said to the safari guide, my friend Alwin, I said, you know, it's going to be so difficult for me to go there because it's enormously expensive to go into the wilderness nowadays because you need a tracker and all these things. It's not easy. And Alwyn just said that, um, he's an animal communication expert, uh, Alwyn. And he said to me that he felt that the leopard wanted to download certain kinds of information to me. And I all I need to do was just fly into Maun in the Okavango Delta. And I could stay as long as I like with um, with Alwyn. And uh, he would take me into the bushveld and into the wilderness and we can track the, the leopard and see what the leopard has to say to me. So, uh, so that's, that's what happened. So it was a real wish come true for me.
3: <laughs> Did it happen though?
6: Yeah, I mean- that's what happened. I, I went into, into Botswana and I went tracking the leopard. And, um, and then I had all these experiences with the, with, with the wilderness, with the animals.
2: Mm.
3: Wow. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the relatability of this journey of yours um, and how particularly uh, Westerners and those of us who are completely apart from nature by virtue of being raised in the cities and so on. Although, you know, many of us have experienced it, but it's been more as quote-unquote vacation just to get away from the noise. So talk about just the the relating of what this is that's happening, of what did you find there, for instance, just essence-wise, that can actually inform how we live here in cities and so on?
6: What I found was this incredible peace in the wilderness, this incredible peace and incredible stillness. And... The way that we access that peace is through, is through meditation, is through listening to our own heartbeats, is to feel and listen to the wind going inside of us. And, um, and just to be, to be still, just to be silent. And to be silent doesn't necessarily mean we have to become like Zen monks in Montreal as such. But to be silent just means to go into the park and to watch the, the birds and watch the squirrels. And to just close your eyes and feel, feel the wind going through the trees, really turn your phones off and just look at the squirrel and just feel what what is the life of the squirrel, what is is happening there, And, and to become more mindful of other creatures rather than just ourselves. So unfortunately, human beings have become incredibly narcissistic and driven just by our own egos and our own selfish desires. So the state of the wilderness now and the shrinking of the wilderness around the world is really a call for us to become more spiritual and to learn to listen, to listen to our own selves, to listen to the wind inside of us rather than our own desires, and then look at the wild ones. So the squirrels, are they not as wild, we may think, as the leopard or the lion, but then they are. They are just as wild as the leopard, the lion, and the great white shark because they are part of the wilderness they're part of the animal kingdom and anyone around the world in urban areas in london and new york wherever there's a park wherever wherever there's doves or squirrels or or other creatures a great thing for our spiritual practices for us to just let go and And close our eyes and, and, and ask ourselves, how is this other creature doing? You know, breathe, breathe in the dove, breathe in the squirrel and feel what, how are they? How are they? How are they doing? And as we do that, then we become less selfish and, um, and we come, become more spiritual.
3: Hmm. And you call this rewilding modern man and woman.
6: Rewilding. Means to occupy the wilderness inside ourselves, to feel that we are not separate from the world, that we are part of this world. And to have a practice where we are just thinking of ourselves and our own enlightenment is, is, is not a spiritual practice. A spiritual practice should be where we're thinking about the outside world. We're looking at the state of the doves, noticing one-legged pigeons, noticing the state of the, of the plants and then doing something about it.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I, I have to keep moving into this place where um, that kind of reconnecting with, as you call it, inner wilderness. Um, and you, you, you also bring in, uh, of course, connecting with our dreams um, and, and generally mindfulness. Um, that that's all very much a part of what I would call yes. returning to um, true nature, because true nature is in sync with uh, with wilderness, with wild animals, with people. Who, I mean, this is to me, uh, you know, that thing you, the little story you told about Leonard Cohen in the beginning, mm. and, and what he did. That is, is that is aligned with nature. He. Was aligned with nature mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that he got out of himself, right? He didn't have the cops come mm-hmm. and throw the guy mm-hmm. out, right? Um, and and Leonard yeah. was quite aware of his own uh, narcissism. I mean, this is uh, came out, of course, in, in much of his music. His his level of awareness was so so powerful, um, but. Yeah, how do you connect up? Again, I mean, I can see what you're saying. I mean, just to get out in nature, and it can be beyond squirrels. I mean, I go out in nature here in North Carolina with, with my animals, and we're quite aware of everything that's going on. I have to be in terms of making sure they're not going to encounter you know, a bear or whatever and just keeping aware of the sounds. And once you start to tune into the sounds... Of the birds and rustling animals and you know snakes and everything else, you start to slow down so i I really appreciate what you're advising here and what you yourself are putting yourself through in South Africa in the wild, um, but taking it a little bit further into the practicality of how we connect with that uh, how that connection with animals and wilderness can humanize us and connect us with the sacred. Talk about that connection on a day-to-day basis and how that can be meaningful.
6: So as we're thinking about the animals and how are they doing, whether it could be your pet, could be your dog or could be your cat, you having to tune into the world beyond language, you having to tune into the world beyond English or French or Italian or Xhosa, you having to tune into another way And you're having to connect with your own instinct, your own intuition. And as we do that, then we become more empathic creatures. We become more compassionate. So the focus means, I suppose, a deep form of listening, because that's what mindfulness is. It's a deeper form of listening. And when we're really listening, especially to animals, we're not trying to finish their sentences because they don't speak English or they don't speak French. We have to really feel how are they doing? Do they need water? Do they need, what, what is this creature that I'm looking after? What does it need? Like your dogs, for example. And as we're tuning into them rather than our own lives, we are automatically, we automatically become more intuitive and we become more compassionate. So I think that's what it's about. I mean, what I'm talking about is the same as what Ram Dass is talking about or any spiritual teacher. It's just a slightly different focus on focusing on the wilderness because the wilderness is dying. So that's why I'm focusing on the wilderness in this particular way. But if the wilderness wasn't dying, then I'd be using slightly different language. But it's the same spiritual language that's been played out for centuries. It just means... Some kind of action is needed. So, if you feel in your dog and you're tuning into your dog and you feel that she isn't well or he's not well, then you 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 feel their stomach or you feel their body and you feel a lump or something like that, and then you decide to take them to the to, to the vet or or take some kind of action. So, the first is us feeling the natural world, whether it's our own animals or walking in the park and looking at the doves and seeing the state they're in. And then it's taking some kind of action, which is an action of altruism, an action of doing something for the other. Yeah, doing something for
3: other. Of course, what, what's happened in India in terms of uh, uh, the animal population is, uh, is a horror and just as much a horror as any other place. Um, they have to just the smallest areas now where there's any kind of wild animals left. I mean, India is not a very big country and has uh, hmm. well over a billion people, so it's a very difficult thing. Um, but, you know, you, uh, you did mention, though, that you saw one thing. I was curious about this. Uh, a National Geographic doc on a particular village and how it treated endangered birds.
6: What was that about? Um, I don't know if it was me. I, I'm not really sure about that. Yeah, you National said Geo- they were
3: honored in National Geographic documentary about how one particular village treated in, in endangered. Birds. Oh,
6: that was in India. Yes, that was in yeah, India. Yeah. was uh, yes. It was a, it was it was a documentary I saw. And it was showing how one village in India was treating these endangered birds. And it was an incredible thing to see. Um, I don't know what, some kind of rare heron. And they were feeding the herons and they fed them at a certain time of the day. And they literally got hundreds and thousands of them. And they'd all descended at a certain time every day. And, yeah. and then they would leave a few hours later. And... The man who who started it said that it was a very important part of yogic practice to think of other beings, not just ourselves. Mm. And when he heard about these endangered birds, he decided to do something about it. So he spoke to all the villagers and they just put out, put out food certain times of the day. And eventually they started getting hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of birds. And mm. it became became a, a real spectacle. So um, so all the villages would start helping. I'm not sure where it is in India, but it was a, it was a real, um, they really made a statement in terms of changing the tide of of, of the desecration of the wilderness and of, of animals to change the perception through using yogic practice of looking after the animal kingdom.
3: Mm. So really what you're, you're doing is really twofold. By going into um, Botswana and going into the jungle to have this encounter with the leopard, that's one aspect designed to have this connection for you to open up and be able to share whatever you are getting from this uh, animal and from the spirit. At the same time, you're trying to bring attention to the fact of, of the disaster that is going on, specifically in Africa and Southern Africa, but very much
6: everywhere.
3: Mm. Um, yes. How, do you, how are you managing to bring these two things together, which is a personal journey for you that you would be able to share as a teacher and as well uh, a mission to, for awareness of what's going on and maybe, you know, how do you manage that's a bit of a tight road road back?
6: Yes, yes. Um, so the word I've done is I've started special retreats now in the Kalahari Desert, which are oh. going to be starting next year, which I'm calling Dreams and Tracking in the Kalahari. And it's going to be a seven-day vision quest taking people into the heart of the Kalahari and at the end. We're going to be joined by Kalahari San elders, Bushman elders, who are where we're going to sit in circle because I've, I've been researching and working with the stories of the Kalahari San elders or Bushman people since I was 14 years old. And it's been my wish and, and dream to work alongside them. And I have this dream where modern and ancient man can sit in a circle to help revision the future. Not where ancient man is having to perform for modern man because they don't have any money and all they've got is their songs and their drums, but where ancient and modern man sit in a circle, eating food together and talking and helping to revision the future. So, this is what I'm doing, and this is what we're going to be doing next year um, in the Kalahari. And my intention is to help educate and help to rewild modern people. And as you know, uh, Raghu, it only takes one drop in a, in a body of water to turn that body of water into a healing elixir or a poison. Just one drop in a whole body of water can turn it into something powerful for healing or something very dangerous. So my feeling is to train just a handful of people or people who feel called as I do in the Kalahari And we're going to train them in the old indigenous ways of tracking and of spirituality. And then they're going to go back to wherever they come from, whether it's America or England, wherever they come from. And hopefully their lives will be changed. And then they can spread this awareness of the wilderness through observing and spending time with indigenous elders and learning these ancient ways through myself.
2: All right. Next up we have a chat with entrepreneur and philanthropist Sarah Wilson from Mind Rolling Episode 370 about the critical connection between nature and our economic systems.
3: I'll tell you a little story from my time in India. Uh, first time I've been in, I've lived in India a lot. Uh, but yeah. the first time when I met uh, the guru Neem Karoli Baba, Ramdas' guru, um, and at one point through a whole incredible uh, um, moment of me just trying to go to Delhi to get a new passport and him telling me I was basically going to meet Tibetan people, uh, a lama who was going to give me teachings and it all happened and blew my mind. But the real thing was, I mean, it was all real. <laughs> it was all beyond real. This, uh, this lama, Kalu Rinpoche is his name, was one of the great lamas of the last century. And I asked him just that question. I said, you know, I just came from the mountains and meditating. I'm like in this incredibly free place. Do I have to stay there? (laughs) Is that the only way I'm going to be? I got to hold on to this. You got it? I got to hold on. So he said, absolutely not. In fact, and he told me the stories of the seven siddhas who lived in India a long, long time back. Each of them became realized, free through work, through one or another, a weaver, a potter, whatever, all of the the different uh, occupations at the time. And that's, he said, that is what it's about. It it is not about going into a cave. Yes, of course, that's part of any kind of process, which is retreat, which you're talking about throughout this book, that your main practice seems to me is being in nature, hiking, and absorbing uh, the support that that provides, which is... uh
0: So that you can then go back to everyday life, whatever that might look like for you, the hecticness of living in a city or suburban life or whatever it might be, and be of service. And I think think one of the things is... um, the times are dictating that we go out, not in. The world is calling us out to be of service. It's asking us to step up and meet it so that we can save it. And I think the collective is needs to be a priority for a while. And I think we, we go through phases throughout history. There are times where it's appropriate to go inwards. And it's that, that whole sort of Vedic um, notion of creation maintenance, destruction. And I think there's behavior and practices that are pertinent for different phases. And at the moment, I think the world is calling out, you know, nature, mother nature is calling out to us and going, come on humans, use your evolution, everything that you've managed to kind of work on to meet me and love me, Love this wild and precious life, so that you can save it, so that mm-hmm. you can really, um, really honor it. And mm-hmm. I feel that that's the call to action. And I feel that you know the readers of my book are really starting to feel that. And we've mm-hmm. we've we've lost the ability to. We've lost the respect for that. We've lost the understanding of how important that is because, and you said that it's our individual behavior and interpretation of these spiritual traditions. And I'd Mm. say that, I'd say that it's also very much the capitalist or neoliberal system that has told us that individualism is the way to go. And, and that goes against our nature. We just, it's not going to take much for us to swing back around because it's in our nature, to uh, be connected to, to the one, not yeah. to be so fragmented.
3: I uh, That's very optimistic, actually, Sarah. When <laughs> I, I'm living over here and 71 million people voted I no know. to that. I mean, yeah. that's a very big generalisation, but they voted no thinking that any kind of, uh, you know, reading of what would happen in the future around collective and they of course it's marxism communism we're going to get taken over kind of a thing so it's a very it's a it's a very difficult thing uh and that's
0: a lack of leadership good leadership Really, and yeah. and I cover this in the book. I wrote the book, obviously, well before this Trump yeah. catastrophe. Although there is an anecdote that I share in Joshua Tree where I was there when Trump announced that he was running for president. You know, oh, this um, book was written
3: for, for uh, four years ago. What? Well, it was
0: written. It took me three years to research it. So oh, wow. I researched it. As you know, it's a journey, and I go mm. on a journey for three years to investigate yep. these ideas. Yeah. And in the final parts of the book, you know, COVID hits, and then yeah, the yeah. You know, the whole Trump thing, you know, yeah. builds up, and then the Black Lives Matters. Protest yeah. also happening the final sort of days of me writing mm. this book. So mm. um, it's very, very current, but um I talk about this in the book that whether you are a climate denier, a Trump supporter, whatever, I think that we are all feeling the same pain. And this is the challenge that I put to readers of the book is, you know, to quote um Rumi, out beyond ideas of right and wrongdoing, there's a field. Let's meet there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the challenge that we face. You know, that what is it that Chinese proverb that the dangerous opportunity yeah, or, or yeah. whatever dangerous it was? Dangerous
3: opportunity, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the dangerous opportunity we face. And I think we can feel it. We could go one way or the other. And I agree with you, there's that 71 million people that we, we can't ignore. But I think the challenge, the dangerous opportunity, is to go there. F- feeling the same itch, the same disconnect, the same pain yeah. as yeah. us. Yeah. Now, what's been lacking is a convincing dialogue, um, inspiring enough leadership that says there's a way that's actually better than the way that we've been doing, which is about polarisation and fragmentation. Um, and that's what we need to start to steer our compass towards. And I I, I don't know if Biden is that person. But I think that he certainly has an understand, a compassionate, a compassion for that 71 million. I don't think he wants to fragment further. And I think the dialogue so far has been about inclusivity and meeting in that common field. And that's the challenge we face.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, I I do think this is uh, an a very worrisome thing related to like just look at all of the next gen that were so into Bernie Sanders here mm. and uh and then you go to uh, to the far right, and the fear of him is extraordinary. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so that
0: polarization in yeah. itself, however, is symptomatic of the capitalist system. So, for, for people listening, what I do is fairly early on in the book, I cover off the fact that the big, one of the big reasons why we are where we are at today is because of our adherence and our blind adherence to the capitalist system. And in fact, at one point I say, let's consider it as a cult. And I, you know, get the official definition of a cult and line up capitalism, and it essentially ticks all the boxes. Um, And when you're in a cult, you don't know that you're in a cult, okay, because it's all encompassing. You don't realise that there's an other and if there is another, i.e. socialism, communism, they, they're essentially an enemy. It's just, you know, it's a given. Um, and we certainly don't consider that might be something other than the other. You know, there might be you know, some other solutions, infinite solutions. Um, so I I do that because I essentially want to alleviate people's individualistic guilt. So individualism goes both ways. It makes it all about me, 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 but it also gives licence to governments and corporations to blame us all. And so we walk around in this kind of freedom-orientated sort of utopian vision while at the same time carrying the huge burden that everything's our fault right? So, if the world's falling apart, it's because we're not recycling well enough. And so, there's this two-way thing and I really wanted to break it apart so that people could stand back once again, take themselves back further in the cinema so that they can see they're watching a, a system unfurl and go, all right, I can alleviate myself of this guilt so I can move more into action and do something about this. Guilt stops us from acting. So that was my modus operandi to dedicate in a very large chapter to breaking this down. <laughs> but we are in the situation we're in because we have lost an understanding and a respect for the collective. And we are expected to go out and get ahead. You know, think about the way parents talk about their children. I need my child to get ahead. They need opportunities. And, of course, who are you getting ahead of? You're getting ahead of your cousins, your neighbours, children. Um, And it's a mindset that um, at times has kind of served humanity. It's certainly brought a brought up brought along a bunch of freedoms a certain amount of opulence it certainly lifted a lot of the, the the you know the third world into the second world so there's a bunch of benefits but like all systems they can start to unravel and they can no longer serve and that's where we're at today neoliberalism's got to a point and neoliberalism is the extension of capitalism where we have got rid of what i call the moral umpires on the field we used to have things like spiritual traditions, even churches, trade unions. We used to have these, even the Scouts movement, whatever it was, we had these structures in place that would ensure that our individualism didn't run rampant, that we still kept a balance with the collective. Mm. And we—we we, it kind of kept us on the, the provided what David Brooks calls moral guardrails, you mm, know, yeah. and it's prevented us from going into that horrible moral aloneness where it's a free-for-all and we no longer have attachments to sort of moral certitudes. So that is the problem I have with capitalism. And I think it's really, really pertinent that we get out of our capitalist bubble, the cult bubble, stand back and go, okay, we are in a system and we can choose to dismantle it. We can choose to alter it and shift it so that we can, we can best serve our lives.
2: All right, we're going to close out today's episode with a reflection from activist Alistair McIntosh. It's about the possibility of bringing humanity and nature into closer balance through political reform. Enjoy.
3: Okay, here's something (laughs) (laughs) I'm embarrassed to say, and uh, I'll tell a little story, but... uh, after you know, I, I start. I saw the Jim Morrison uh, reference, and then you know, I'm reading through the beginning of the book, and we have things mm-hmm. like, let's see, uh, oh my, it's just uh, you really have to. Where, where is this? Ay-ay-ay-ay-ay. Epidemics, pandemics, COVID. Of course, you go into and um, mm-hmm. and uh, there's so much untowardness that is going mm-hmm. on in on mm-hmm. this planet pest pol- pollinators and disease uh drought fire and flood i'm mm-hmm. i'm sitting here in california and it's all around us uh yeah. you know and um oh uh, marine heat waves uh, ocean mm-hmm. stratification mm-hmm. acidification and so you you keep all i could think of was a jim morrison song it goes something like this this is the end do 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 the only end, my friend. Talk about a nihilistic point of view, which is the opposite of what you espouse and live. Uh, but I, um, I have a very good friend who is uh, part of the. He has been very involved in uh, in politics and activism uh, for his entire life. Was head of the ACLU in in California and. Uh, you know, very much uh, a lefty. And uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, I, I always, I have him on, he had a podcast on Be Here Now Network for a while then, but he's been, he's uh, managed, he's a major guy in the music business, manages different people, but is also a writer. So I count on him for political acumen and a Picture mm. kind of ideas mm. rather than, mm. you know, you're in the reactivity in the trenches, so to speak. Mm. So Ruth uh, B- Bader Ginsburg died, and, uh, you know, it was, of course, a huge shock here, as you can imagine. It was the one fear that most people had because then, you know, he would have uh, Trump would of have course. the opportunity to do it, what he's it, done. It, yeah. so please, Yeah, So I wrote to him, I texted him, I said, oh my God, this is a terrible tragedy. And boy, what does the future look like? Or something like that. Expecting him to give me a complete, you know, it was like, is this the end, Danny? His name is Danny Goldberg. And I expected him to come back with a treatise on the complexity of the moment related to the historical, you know, everything returns there is nothing that is static right no but you know what i got back from him yes just yes (laughs) we are screwed (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so then it fed my this is the Uh, end yeah anyhow that's uh, all oh oh boy oh boy um and, and I think um, that I mentioned to you the, the great Chinese aphorism, which I've been mentioning on many podcasts, but is worth repeating that these kinds of times, they call dangerous opportunity. And yeah. that is, I believe, core to your message, absolutely
1: core to your message. You bet. You bet. Um, that was why I agreed to write this book. And as you know, the first you know, of the eight, um, sorry, how many chapters have I gotten at um <laughs> nine. Of the, of the nine chapters, the first four are actually summarizing the current science of climate change. Because if we're going to dig from where we stand, we have to know where we stand. Yeah. So before speculating on where climate change leads us to psychologically and spiritually, we need to know what the science is actually saying. And so I've leaned on the three recent special reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the body set up by the United Nations, because those are the special reports that will most inform the next meeting of COP26, a conference of the parties, in other words, the heads of government of the world for their 26th meeting, which was due to have been taking place one mile up the river from where I am in Glasgow just now next month, but has now been postponed to the following year. And so basically what I've done is I have summarized what's in those reports. Mm. And to those who say, well, the IPCC is much too conservative in how it puts things. I reply, look, these reports are put together by the leading climate scientists in the world. Not just any old climate scientists, but scientists with a reputation worth not losing. You know, there's a lot of people who try to make their reputation by attacking the science and saying it's either, it's either too exaggerated or it's too conservative. And the question that I always have is, uh, who in this has got a reputation worth not losing? In other words, who's going to play a straight ball with it? Mm. And I think particularly in the report on 1.5 degree of global warming, various commentators have said that the IPCC has really pulled out the stops and named it as it is. Mm. Now, the thing about climate science is that a lot of people have opinions about climate science one way or another. But the thing to remember is that mostly we only know what we think we know about climate science because of the science of climate science. And so if we're going to pretend we know better, either it's not happening like the scientists say it is, or it's happening far, far worse, than the scientists say it is. And we're all going to be extinct by 2026, so there's going to be six or seven million dead because of climate change within the next one or two generations. If we come out with that kind of narrative, what, on what basis are we claiming to know better? So in both the science and the spirituality, we have to come at it. From a position of humility; otherwise, we will trip up on the shadow of our own hubris. Mm.
3: Yeah. Well put. It, one one thing that struck me, because we come in in the tradition we come from in India, and uh, it's really around feeding people. This was a major edict from <laughs> Ninkaroli Baba. Um, mm so the the of course the great concern about food insecurity you have in here and uh, and of course that has to include also water uh, which is uh, where i am you know which is basically a desert here in california uh, that's certainly a major issue but i like this one thing i um it's around the concept of resilience which is a huge topic this is resilience related to climate uh um, of course, resilience related to us as humans in this part of uh, our evolvement here is uh, extraordinarily uh, necessary. SRCCL, uh, I'm not sure what that is, but that's uh, this is who you're attributing to this quote. Uh, the capacity of interconnected social, economic, and ecological systems, such as farming systems, to absorb disturbance, such as drought conflict mm-hmm. market collapse and mm-hmm. respond or reorganize to maintain their essential essential function identity and structure
1: mm-hmm. resilience
3: can be described as quote unquote coping capacity mm-hmm. viewing the land mm-hmm. as a component of an interlinked social ecological system identifying key relationships that determine system function and vulnerabilities and identifying (laughs) thresholds or tipping points beyond which the system transitions to an undesirable state. I would only say their remark, resilience is a coping capacity, I think is limited. I think if you add into, we just did a, a retreat at the end of the summer. It was called Wise Hope. Uh, cultivating loving resilience, because a mm-hmm. resilience that's coming out of will is mm-hmm. short. Uh, it's short of the of the truth, short, short of the possibilities. Falls it falls short. Yeah, if it comes from that place which is behind that judgy mind, self interested mind, self cherishing, as the Buddhists say then um, it's a much stronger resilience. How that relates to, uh, of course, that's a personal thing. That's with us as individual souls. Um, But I think in our connection to doing the kind of work you're doing, uh, and I know people here are doing a lot of work uh, that I'm directly involved with. One of them is on the board of uh, our foundation uh, about changing the nature of how we are farming and um, mm-hmm. taking it to the next uh, level, which is yes. not abuse, but rather mm-hmm. real cultivation of the possibilities of moving forward to be able to not get into a food shortages and so on.
1: Well, that long quote, you read that very fine quote, um, CCL is my shorthand for the IPCC's special report on climate change and the land. Mm. that was released last year. So that's actually what you just read out, is IPCC language at its best, where it's defining resilience. Mm -hmm. And of course... Because it's speaking as a scientific body, ragu, you know, it, it it can't really talk about the same kind of things we would talk about in terms of the depth of human community and that bonding as being the, um, the love that moves between us or the potential for the love that moves between us. Um, that's where we have to take what the IPCC says about something like resilience and take it further in exactly the way you've just described, because one of the key points I'm making in this book is that we're not going to save ourselves of the earth purely through conventional, um, technical, economic, political ways of doing things. We are only going to create a sane future, a bright future for humankind and for the regeneration of other species and their habitats if we deepen into community with one another and the planet, and that means opening up to the work of love. And love can't be just turned on as an act of will. Love is a gift of grace. Love comes from recognizing our lovelessness, our blockages and our capacity to love confessing to ourselves and to the divine the deficit we carry within us and asking to be given the gift. If we don't ask, you know, Jesus says, knock on the door will be answered. If we don't knock, if we don't ask, it won't be given. And the whole point about having to ask is that to ask requires a certain humility. And the thing that tends to block us from the grace of love is our ego structures the rigidity of our ego structures, our attachment? As Ramdas was talking about in that um, podcast, "Be Here Now" podcast one hundred and seventy the other day, you know, he was saying, "What is karma? Um, karma is actually our attachment to the to the way we like to think the world should be, instead of a letting go into the grace mm-hmm. of what the Buddha nature, the Tao, the Goddess." Allah, Brahman, Christ, mm-hmm. however, whatever trips you out, yes, <laughs> what the Divine is offering to us, yeah, yeah,
3: another, impo- hey, hey, hey. yeah, really. <laughs> another thing that's quite important, uh, and it's something, boy, we're facing on a day to day basis. I'd like to say more especially here, but probably you can enumerate all of the the, and I'm talking about climate change denialism and how yeah. that fits into the power structure that is yeah. holding on for dear life. and yeah. um, and as you put it here, uh, these, in your experience, these people have been white, male, middle class. And you get the impression, unwilling to consider any, any restraint upon their lifestyle. Yeah. Right? This often comes with a narcissistic presumption of entitlement. Boy, we're describing somebody out there. If challenged, <laughs> hints at a brooding anger, a resentment that I cannot help but ponder might have more to do with early childhood issues than with any real debate about the science. And that is so absolutely descriptive of so many people and, and certainly people who are uh, at the head of our government here in the United States at this point. And uh, uh, the le- level of self-interest is so high, as you say, to, to protect this. So uh, th- that's a really important uh, uh, part of this dialogue part of this conversation?
1: Uh, I mean, you know, that brings us into what I'm really trying to do with this book because like all of my books, um, I work by combining, you know, in this case, science and grounded science, Um, You, if you like, mainstream establishment science because that's quite alarming enough without having to be alarmist by exaggerating climate change. I, I work by combining that with all manner of stories to bring it alive and ground it for my reader. And what I've done in this book is I've bookended it with the work that I have been involved in going back to 1977 in New Guinea. Initially in Papua New Guinea, the independent state in the eastern half of New Guinea, the second biggest island in the world, when I was a volunteer with appropriate technology and teaching in the 1970s and 80s. And then laterally, since 2012, with the eastern Indonesian side, um, often known as West Papua, let's call it Papua for, for our purposes, here just now, where we have had groups of leaders coming over from there, most recently grassroots village leaders, And I take them up to the island I was raised in and where Donald Trump's mother was from, the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides. And we go around and we visit the community land trusts. And we share stories about disempowerment and re-empowerment. So I start off in this book talking about the trip we did last, the visit we had last year funded by a private foundation, of village leaders from West Papua province, from Raja Ampat, who came to Scotland. And the first place we took them to was my own village, Ragu, And we took them out across the river. And when we got to a certain marker point, we had a huge big pot with us. Big big yellow pot that was filled with firewood, and I was there with you know I was there with Rusty, the village blacksmith, who have you know met known since my first day at school when we were four in nineteen sixty, and with a younger generation of two of the young women from the village. And When we got to the marker, we started pulling shellfish off the rocks, all these mussels and cockles in the sand. We started pulling them off and filling the pot. Raghu, these Papuans who were from the villages, they couldn't believe it. They said, this is what we do in our villages to welcome honoured honoured guests. We take them down to the reef and we collect shellfish and we have a feast. And so we collected shellfish and we sat in some old ruins, some stone ruins, and we had the feast. Mm. Whereupon, whereupon um, Evelyn Cool Macleod said, It'll have been a long time since a feast was had in this house. This was the house of one of my grannies. And so as a story unfolded of the Highland clearances, how the people had been evicted from the land, one of whom was Donald Trump's mother's ancestors, bringing about layers of trauma, which eventually led to thousands of islanders emigrating in the 1920s, including herself, where she met Frederick Price And so what I'm doing in this climate change book is I'm analyzing not just the maternal psychohistory of Donald Trump, but I'm also looking at, you know, so much of his base constituency, the Scots-Irish-Americans, many of whom had similar psychological histories. Mm. And I'm saying, you know, we're coming from a place of fundamental dislocation from the land, of clearance from the land. I call it the four Cs. Clearance from the land leading to collapse of our inner life. And so, you know, there's many stories of people getting to the new world, and some of them just went and made it and were all very happy. But many desperately struggled. You know, there's a sad song that says there's no ceilidh on the prairie. There's no partying. There's no community out in the lonely prairies. So clearance, collapse, and then how do you fill the emptiness? You fill the emptiness by becoming a sucker for consumerism. You fill the emptiness by building golden towers, by materialism, because your spiritual connections with the earth and one another have been lost to you and intergenerationally so, so you don't even know what has happened to you. That's why in, in J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, you know, he talks about the spiritual and material poverty of his own people in Appalachia. And, and he says, something's going on that we don't understand. And I'm suggesting it's coming out of this kind of cycle of history in Scotland, Ireland, and other European countries of that era of the first transfer of people. And what is the antidote to that? I'm proposing that the antidote is precisely what we had the Papuans looking at on the Isles of Lewis and Harris. It is rebuilding community. It is getting the land back into community ownership through these land trusts. And then once people are in control of their own place, they can decide what to do by way of infrastructure, renewable energy, affordable housing for the young instead of it all being sold for tourist holiday homes and so on. That's what we are seeing happening in Scotland. Mm. That's what we were showing the Papuans. And when people say, well, what might the world learn if and when it comes to Scotland in November 2021 for the COP26 conference? My answer to that is it might learn about community. Mm -hmm. It might learn about membership together. It might learn about how we rebuild our society. And, you know, you don't need to try and overturn capitalism you just need to try and subvert it from the foundations. When people, when people are back in community of serving one another for the common good, they don't need all the blandishments that marketing and advertising and the capitalist machine throws our way and destroys the environment in the process of it. And that's basically what I'm mm, trying mm, to come at mm, in this book. Mm.
3: Very good. As they say in India, very good.